KO General Station in New York. That's enough of that chance. Hey, you want to hear something that is more the spirit of our time than anything I've run into in a long time? You know, I think I've often said this a lot of times on the air. I don't want to appear too uh, deadeningly repetitious. But I think that that the spirit of any given time is is found not in the uh, formal creations of that time, like the plays. You know, have you ever have you ever thought of uh, of uh, what people would think of us if if they would get any kind of a true picture of us, say a thousand years from now, if they had nothing but Doris Day movies to go on, or Woody Allen movies to go on, for that matter. I mean, don't laugh. You know, you may be hung up on one kind or another of the movies that I'm discussing here, but do not confuse them with reality, Dad. Uh, can you, you know, seriously, can you imagine, though, a historian of a thousand years from now, or a sociologist or anthropologist, trying to figure out how it really was in this time? And so he's got a whole stack of film cans, you know, that they preserve somewhere in some salt cellar in the West Virginia hills, you know, and it's lasted thousands of years. And they put on, uh, let's say they put on something like, uh, oh, Ben Hur. And uh, they try to figure out what what the devil we were up to in that one, uh, <laughs> and, and then then they then they uh, that was one of our serious pictures, you see. Then they put on uh, Doris Day chases Rock Hudson through uh, Wonderland. They put that one on. They try to figure it out. They probably get a little even more realer idea of what it was like in that one than they will through Ben Hur, as a matter of fact. Then they then they put on uh, say something like uh, oh you can name it any one of your serious films let's take the serious film underground like flaming creatures they put that on and uh, you know they try to figure out what our civilization was like for that uh, bit you know now on the other hand let's take serious things uh, what we call so we don't put much stock in the movies you know uh, let's face it so they go out and they they take uh, a novel let's say. Uh, um, the American Dream by Norman Mailer. You really think that's the way life is, Norman, in, in these United States in 1965? Or is this part of Norman's fantasy about life in 1965? You know, now they would they would th- these things will all be left. You know, they're going to put all these things together. Now I suggest seriously that uh, the people digging in the rubble of garbage, just the garbage, the stuff we put on the bottom of bird cages. Uh, you know, the stuff that we wrap old fish with down on 2nd Avenue, the stuff that people stick on, on basement shelves where they put used tires on, all that stuff. This is where they're going to find the real story of how people felt about the world at the given time. Hey, listen to this little bit. Would you please play me a few of them little birds? In there? Here is a typical young man of our time, alert, concerned, a responsible citizen of 1965. I am quoting a newspaper. His picture looks out and he has the weak eyes of a man who has looked inward far too long and never once looked outward. 
I will not give you his name. It doesn't matter. Here's what he says about the great world situations of our time. I don't want to die in Vietnam, if that's what it comes to. I'm 23 and a graduate student in psychology at Hofstra University, but the draft age is up to 26, so I've still got three dangerous years. Let us all weep a bitter tear for this responsible citizen of our great free republic. I think, I go on and I'm quoting him here, he says, I think it's a very bad situation in Vietnam and one that should be remedied. But no one should have to go out there. That's getting right to the heart of world conditions, fella. And no one should have to go out there and die there. Especially... Not me. I'd like to see the United Nations try to solve the problem. <laughs> the great cop-out. Now, I'm not taking any stand here one way or the other on the Vietnam situation, but this, this shows a fascinating attitude towards the world. And uh, can you imagine a recruit saying that to George Washington at Valley Forge? <laughs> Why not die here? What, 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 what? And, and of course, if, if this attitude were were contained in in most people of our of our world, we would still be a very small colony. I submit, <laughs> a very very small one with a lot of guys with weak eyes, but but a lot of school. To, have you noticed that today one of the now that brings up another thing. This is a grown up man, you know. I think most grown up men today. One of the great new syndromes is to remain a schoolboy all of your life. Now, they don't like to use that word schoolboy. The word is student. Uh, however, the sc- <laughs> uh, I've known guys 35 years old who are still students. And incidentally, they continue to think of themselves as teenagers. That's one of the interesting uh, side lights of, of the student world. No matter how old you are, no matter how long you've gone to whatever this particular citadel of higher learning is, we are learning about the world. No matter how long you've been able to hang on and yent yourself along through through life, uh, weaseling out one one uh, grant after the other and, and squeezing the old man dry, no matter how long you've been able to do this, you think of yourself as a downtrodden student. You always think of yourself as a teenager, one who must be supported, one who must be helped. Never one who has to help. You never think of yourself as one. Now, when you do think, I've, I've known many students and who did think of themselves as responsible, helping individuals, but they think, they think in terms of a protest meeting. That's what's called helping. Going to hear Joan Baez uh, at $4 a head. That's called a great, uh, a great step in the direction towards straightening up the ills of our world. They think that by buying a Bob Dylan record, they've made a real positive movement forward and uh yeah they really do seriously and and i've talked i've talked to many a guy who spent the last 26 years at harvard and uh and 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 they they really feel like they have suffered the slings and unkind arrows of a of a cruel cruel world uh there's nothing nothing so awe-inspiring than to see a pimply-faced 32 year old adolescent leap out of the crowd in his black turtleneck sweater at Rutgers and say, yeah, Shepard, but what about us kids? What about us? 
What about the world we're inheriting? We never made it. We never made it. What about us kids? And he sits down with his bottle of Sloan's liniment to keep his, his joints in condition. <laughs> and and uh, once again, the voice of the 35-year-old adolescent is heard like the sound of a cuckoo throughout the land. I can say is that I'm hung up with envy for you. I never discovered that racket. Uh, in fact, when I was in school, the object, and this is not that long ago, the object was to get out. Now today, the object is to stay in. <laughs> you know, it's quite the opposite. And and many a guy feels that somehow, of course, there's another thing, too, that, that I think must be pointed out about the eternal world of the schoolboy and or slash student. And that is the, the, the interesting implied feeling of superiority that all students have over the outside. Now, the outside people are engaged in mundane activities, you know, like, uh, you know, making money, like, uh, you know, supporting people, like students. Uh, <laughs> they're engaged in, in those sad, rotten, mundane situations, you know, where they keep, well, they die, you know, that kind of stuff. And, uh, well, you know, the ridiculous kind of things. They, they, they walk around and pay taxes and they, they, they do all that rotten, ridiculous commercial pap that is for the lesser people. They do not, and they, they, they rarely find themselves able to sit around for four and a half hours at a stretch and argue about Camus' final place in history, which, of course, means that they don't know about Camus. Right, kids? Which, of course, means that they're not as concerned about life as Camus was, and you are, of course. Uh, so naturally, you are a, a basically superior person. There's no question about it. Anybody who's going to Rutgers is superior. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Anyone who's involved in going to Princeton is obviously a select person in this great world of ours. Now, the, the awful situation arises when all of a sudden the guy gets that little piece of paper and he's no longer going to Princeton. He has somehow been disenfranchised from the world of the select. He has somehow, he is now out of Rutgers, Rutgers, I'm sorry. He's out of Rutgers, and he's, he finds himself, he finds himself dealing with what he used to call scut. You know, the first five minutes after he's out, he gets a piece of thing in the, pay, in the mail and asks him about his 1965 taxes. What is this jazz? And, you know, he's, he's uh, what is this form he's got to fill out, you know, that has to do with, with all these various things. Like, you know, the, the, the scut, the, the crud of the world. You know what I'm talking about. So, immediately, if, if, he, if he has anything on the ball today, he rushes down to the Fulbright people and applies for a grant. Now, is he really interested in learning more about archaeology? Like hell. Most of the guys I know are interested in somehow escaping that world, that place out there. And so, and also reinstating himself back in the world of the superior people. Back in the world. How, I know, listen, I know, I went to college, I'm sorry, fellas. I know that when I used to sit in the, in the, in the, in the bus, you know, and I'm sitting back there and I got my war, my thumbed volume of, of uh, Schopenhauer's uh, excerpt, you know, now, always excerpts, by the way. It was always it was always a survey course, uh, like you know, from Beowulf to uh, from Beowulf to Hemingway in three quick weeks, uh, which surely gives you a deep seated and sound understanding of what English literature was about. So I'm sitting in the bus, you know, and I'm I'm holding this thing in my hand, and and I'm surrounded by three of my peers. 
You have no idea what a fantastic feeling of tremendous superiority we felt over all those tired people around us. Those tired people with the bags under their eyes, you know, carrying the shopping bags and the lunch buckets. The guys in the rumpled gray suits, you know, with the with the with the stained hats. Those guys staring moodily out into the into the into the undulating darkness of the midwestern the midwestern skyline. And we'd sit there, you know, and we'd say, "Well, yeah, we understand this kind of stuff, don't we, Charlie? What about the people? You know, the slobs." That's translated. Well, of course, there is a terrible deep-seated urge to be part of that superior world. And the minute you get out, you lose the badge. A Princeton student. You are an ex-Princeton student, and that's a very different situation. The world is full of ex-Princeton students. And, of course, what are they doing? Paying insurance policies. What are they doing? Paying on a car. What are they doing? Trying to get away from their wife. What are they doing? They're out there scratching in the rain. But what are the Princeton students doing? Well, <laughs> they're playing guitars. That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. And they got the Bob Dylan records going full blast and the Joan Baez records. They have a very, very special world. Now, the old idea of education, of course, and I'm not the old, let's say the previous idea of education, and one that is held still by millions of people, is that education prepares you for life. Now, there is a new thing abroad in our world today, and that is that education is life. <laughs> That's a very different concept, an extremely different concept. And for that reason, the world of the a academician and the world of the student, the world of the, the perpetual schoolboy, and incidentally, most of the teachers today in colleges are schoolboys of one kind or another who have never, ever been able to escape from that that, that, that thing, that hang-up, they've got to stay there somehow. You know, after you're 46, there's only one thing you can do. You become an insistent instructor. Uh, while you're still working on your third Ph.D., you see, and, and eventually, you know, I, I suspect that we're going to grow a group of Mandarin ex-students. It'll be an entire social group uh, where, where some guys will have as many as 175 Ph.D.s in various fields ranging all the way from epistemology to uh, some of the basic muscular studies, perhaps by way of, of, of the new studies in stamp collecting, all the way out up and down. But the point I'm making here is that the, is that the institution of higher learning has become a fortress against the real world to so many, many people. Uh, and it's, 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 a, it's a difficult problem to face because uh, you never really know I know the urges because I've, I've gone through all this myself. You know, I'm speaking from knowledge here, not from guesswork. I know the urge, the terrible urge, there always has existed among all graduates of all higher institutions of learning to flee back to it in moments of stress. Why do you think that the old grads uh, gather and weep about old mores across the street from the quad? And sing the old songs. Oh, there were nothing but lambs, poor little stray lambs. La, na, na. Speaking of fortresses away from reality, this is WOR AM at FM, New York. Bring that little birdie on there to salute Mr. Lee in there. Ever upwards and onwards with Channel 710. Your dynamics. <laughs> That's enough for that. We've given them up a salute there. Miller High Life in Pop and Pour cans. Distinctive Miller High Life in Pop and Pour cans. 
Just pop and pour Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. No opener needed. And inside every can, enjoy the hearty yet light goodness of Miller High Life. Brewed from a century-old recipe, only in Milwaukee. Miller High Life always gives you that perfect taste in beer every time. Always a bright, clear taste. Unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging. Now you can enjoy refreshing Miller High Life in pop and pour cans. Pop and pour Miller High Life. Always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Now in pop and pour cans. All right, let's see. We have a commercial here for Orensteins. Hey, how does Peggyn say it? Orensteins? Orensteins, 213 Canal Street. That's down in the wild neighborhood between Baxter and Mulberry Streets. And by the way, for those of you who have not visited Orensteins, just a visit to the neighborhood is uh, worth the price of admission. It's two blocks east of the BMT and Lexington Avenue, the IRT at Canal Street. Now, they're closed Saturdays during July and August. That's, of course, last month and this month. And they're open weekdays from 9 until 5, and they have practically every leading brand of imported and domestic silver, china, crystal, pewter, giftware at fantastically low prices. Uh, I hate to use the word discount house, but uh, their prices are really much lower than the same merchandise uptown. You see it along Fifth Avenue, places like 57th Street and so on. And uh, I, I personally find a visit, uh, you know, going downtown in that area anyway, far more interesting than walking along 57th Street or 5th Avenue. And again, the place is Orensteins. It's really worth a visit. If you're planning to buy a lot of Christmas stuff early this year, you better get down there quick. It's 213 Canal Street between Baxter and Mulberry Streets. Okay, is that enough? All right, Orensteins. But uh, this this uh, this little piece of paper here, you know, this little guy commenting. Now that makes sense to large numbers of people. His only real gripe, and this ultimately is what most people I know uh, who are involved in one kind of movement or another, their only real complaint about the various world conditions, which can cause a lot of trouble to a lot of people, is that it's liable to involve them. That's the ultimate worry they have. It's liable to involve them. And and that seems enough of a reason for a large number of people to be against or to be... Now, you see, he realizes there is a problem there. But he wants somebody else to handle it. That mythical, that thing called the U.N. I wonder what he what he thinks the U.N. is. Does he think the U.N. is a, is a separate thing that was created by God to take care of problems so that guys can continue to go to Rutgers? Or is the U.N. other people who have to go and do it for him? Now, that's a good question. <laughs> other guys who are taken away from their studies or their little hang-ups or their particular crocheting that they were working on when the big problem of, uh, suddenly developed. Now, I, I am for every possible peace movement that there can be. You know, I hear all these people talking about, about uh, they're just against war per se. That's a great attitude. I'd love to have that attitude. I think I, 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 would, uh, I would have to say this, though, that war is not necessarily the thing that really exists by itself. R war is not like rain or sand. War is not like uh, the ocean. 
It does not have its own rules. It is created and caused. Now, that's the problem. Uh, I, 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 have to, I have to tell you this, that practically everybody I know who went into the Army uh, during World War II were against war. <laughs> I mean, sure, you know. I'm sure that a, that a cop is against gunfights. I mean, especially if he's got a gun in his hand and there's a guy at the other end of the alley with another Roscoe. You know, he's against gunfights. But there it is. You know, there's the situation. Now, now, uh, what do you do when Hitler's develop? Well, you know, I, I'm going to submit an idea that I've been kicking around a long time with, and that is that that the that the that any future tyrants, any future world. Uh, guys with world ambitions, in other words, uh, who feel that they want to somehow, in one way or another, control the world. You know, this is an old dream. This is a dream that goes back as, as far as the very earliest of the cavemen. There was always one or two guys for one reason or another. And I think it's a basic thing instilled in mankind. You know, let's face it, every company wants to be tops. Every radio station on the dial wants to have the top rating. They they want to control the dial. This is a this is a basic thing. Uh, every actor wants to get more awards than any other actor. Is this true? Uh, every actor wants to get better roles than any other actor. If he could play all the roles, he'd be happy. Uh, every ball team wants to win every game. They do. With uh, that would be the perfect season if the Yankees won. 164 games one year. That would end baseball right there. There'd be no more argument. They would have accomplished the ultimate. Now, what is this urge on the part of man to, to top all other men? Well, it finds its, its expression in many ways. One way, it finds its expression in the tall story. Another way, it finds its expression in a tall fantasizing of the individual himself. And so Norman Mailer spins endless stories about what a fantastic person Norman Mailer is. Uh, this is this is another way of surmounting. This is doing it through fantasy. Uh, you you find uh, on on the sports level you find uh, uh, we all have a desire to know who's the best boxer. If you notice from the very beginning of boxing, they had champions. They were not concerned with just who can fight. Let's just watch these two guys A and B fight. They wanted to find the best fighter so that he became the king of the world. This is a basic urge. A very basic urge. Now, how does it find its expression in politics? Well, that's pretty obvious. That, that, uh, that politics is one thing. When a man is dealing with the national level, he wants to be the president. This is an old urge. Everybody wants to be an officer. Now, they can complain and, and yell and holler. They don't. You know what happens to many people? Early in their lives, they realize they're never going to be an officer. They realize they're never going to make it. So then they become anti-officer. They pretend that they never wanted to be an officer. And the one thing they would not want to be is president. Don't give me that jazz. I'm alive, too, you know. I'm walking around on the street. And I know that we all want to be big. Whether we did at one time, at least, and at the, at a certain point in your life, you realize you're too skinny, or or you got bad eyes. You'll never be a football player, and so you you pretend from that minute on that the most ridiculous thing in the world is football playing. What a silly, idiotic thing, football playing. Uh, only slobs play football, and and it really bothers you to find out that there is one quarterback in the pro football league who just took his Ph.D. in uh, not only in in mathematics, but he took his Ph.D. in abstract mathematics. 
And he is not only that, he's probably the ace quarterback in the big leagues today. That Reedy Bugs guy. Oh, that's a fluke. You know, it's a fluke. Well, is it a fluke? I'm not so sure it's a fluke. I've known, I've known plenty of athletes myself, and almost every athlete I knew was also a superior student. And that bugs a lot of guys who sit in the back row and spend all of their time cribbing from one another and trying to see the blackboard through their glasses. Now, now, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, and, and incidentally, that's another thing. We like to parallel physique with quality. Today, uh, if, you, if you're too, if you've got too much of a physique, if you're, in other words, if you're, if you're, if you're well set up, uh, people think of you somehow as not capable of talking about the troubles of mankind. So then, that is called the Woody Allen syndrome, uh, where, where the littler, the skinnier, and the, the, the more frightened you are, the more truthful you're considered to be. Well, that's one of the reasons why large numbers of Germans loved Hitler, because he did seem to be such a little thin, uh, sad little creature that he couldn't possibly be telling the, couldn't possibly be lying, you know. Uh, and so this is all this is all part of that whole thing. Now, getting back though to that drive to to be top dog, almost any anthropologist, uh, and I'm not, of course, we're we're uh, we're social anthropologists in this world. Uh, in America, we're so oriented to. Uh, to sociology, the social world, and the Freudian world, that we don't like to talk about things like physical anthropology. We don't like to talk about actual physical differences between races. We like to pretend they don't exist. Well, the, the uh, physical anthropologist will tell you differently. And uh, he has always, he has studied for, for out, oh, thousands of years. They found that the bigger tribe uh, quite often loves to pursue the smaller tribe, bigger physically, just big people. Uh, and little people, on the one hand, have always, have, have for one reason or another, skulked in the undergrowth a good deal of the time. Not because they were intrinsically better or more sensitive or more beautiful or better poets, but because they were littler. Frankly, they were smaller. Uh, now, now, this, this is an old, uh, an old problem. It's, it's, it's been with us for, forever. So big countries, quite often, have done the same thing that big people have done. They have wanted to rule the roost. Have you noticed that very few small countries in the last 75 years have made great attempts to rule the world? They just don't do it. Germany, by the way, was not a small country, physically in any sense of the word. And the, the minute that they began to absorb other nations all around them, they became the biggest power, both geographically and militarily in all of Europe, which meant at that time the world. Nobody really seriously took any other part of the world seriously as far as military power is concerned. Even up to World War II, nobody took America seriously because we did pitifully little, you know, in World War I uh, compared to the other nations that were involved in it. So, so the big nations have always wanted somehow to rule the roost in one way or another. Uh, some want to rule the roost philosophically. We would like to see all the world based on our concept of government and philosophy. This is a fact. We, we've always wanted to do this. We want to democratize the world. Well, we're a democracy. We believe in this thing. I'm not saying it's wrong or it's right. It's a fact that everywhere we go, we try to teach democracy to people. Well, for a long time, so did Russia. Russia did the same thing all over the world. They tried to communize the world. In other words, convert the world to their way of thinking and thereby rule the world. Well, now we've got another power which is physically bigger than all of them. Uh, China is physically bigger than, than both Russia and the United States. 
They have more people than both of these powers and ultimately can conceivably have a bigger military machine and everything else down the line. Now they are bound. They are determined that somehow they want to control their world uh, as best they can. It's interesting that in, 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 the, in the 30s, we go on historically, like most people don't know too much about history, uh, especially history in the last 75 years. Uh, they, know, uh, they know a lot of movies about history. I mean, the longest day is most people's idea of what World War II was. Uh, you know, that's, that's the extent of it. However, however, this urge has always been. Now, there's only one thing then that, less, that is, is, is unanswered. What do the rest of the people do when this occurs? When a nation or an individual heading a nation becomes bound and determined to rule the civilized world in one way or another. Usually, uh, militarily, which is rough. Uh, philosophically, that's another scene. You can talk about that. But when it becomes a matter of people marching around with guns, when it becomes a matter of guys marching out in the darkness with black helmets on, uh, and, and you locking up your, your door every night at midnight to make sure they don't come in, then you got another scene. And so you, you're, presented, you're presented with this curious problem of what to do when international crime develops. What do you do then? Do you petition it away? Or do you pretend it doesn't exist? Do you walk away uh, saying, uh, I don't have anything to do with it. I'm against any of this. So hence, it doesn't exist. Somebody made a, made a fascinating uh, uh, comment recently. Uh, I'm sorry that I don't recall. the. Ma hey, Chris, talk about it later, will you? Go, come on, leave, get, get involved with them later. Not now. We're doing a show. So... I suspect uh, the, the comment that was made uh, not too long ago by one of the better uh, sociologists, I forget, uh, unfortunately, I forget where the, where the comment was made. It isn't really important, I suppose, except to the man who made it. But he said that, that world conflict uh, today is largely mythological to great numbers of people who have grown up since World War II. In other words, they like to believe that all of it is somehow manufactured. That, that the mythological aspect of world conflict has become... Because most of them have not known any of it themselves personally. Uh, rarely have they even traveled or been in any of the places where world conflict is occurring. Where these great clashes of forces are going on. And so it seems to them that it is just an arbitrary thing that their local politicians are foisting off on them or creating for them. It's a myth uh, that, that, that there is no real Mao Zedong. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's just a, a kind of a, you know, it's a gambit. It's a, it's a thing. Now, I'm, 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 I must quickly uh, throw in a couple of little asterisks here that I'm not here for, I'm not talking about, uh, I'm not becoming political here. I'm not saying we should go into Vietnam, we shouldn't go into Vietnam. I'm not saying we should extend the war, we shouldn't extend the war. I'm not saying anything of that sort. But what I am saying is that I'm fascinated by the number of people who seem to think that the whole thing was manufactured in Washington. Which is a curious idea about the world. It's as though Washington created uh, the, 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 uh, of course, again, uh, the one way that you can get out of, of any kind of responsibility in any given world situation is to pretend that anything that is said about the other side is pure propaganda. 
This is not true. Uh, do you know that large numbers of people in the 30s fought going into the war against Hitler on that very premise? They said that anything that was said about Hitler, and they weren't for Hitler, by the way. That's an interesting thing. They were just against going. Uh, but they, they, they maintained stoutly through for, for years that anything they'd, they'd read about the, you know, the anti-Semitic thing, they'd read about all this, the concentration camps, that's all ridiculous propaganda. Do you know anybody who's seen this? This is silly. It's a bunch of uh, idiots in Washington trying to get us into this ridiculous war so they get elected again and make all that money and all, you know, all these mythological stuff, on and on and on, until one day, of course, everything hit the fan and there was no question <laughs> there it was. You know, you couldn't get out of it. And even then, for years, there were people after the war started, who still maintained that all of this was a myth. It was all a myth and was all created by uh, warmongers and uh, who knows what, all of designed to take me away from studying dentistry at Indiana U. Now, now uh, this, this, is a, this, is a, this is a problem that always has to be faced at any given time of crisis in the world. The urge that the individual has to maintain his status quo, it's a very, very strong urge. The urge to to uh, to rationalize everything that happens around you, so that somehow you staying home, you not doing anything, is the most logical, humane thing in the world. Uh, that that you can prove your own goodness today by not going. You can prove your own concern for the peoples of the world. And incidentally, I'd like to point that out too. You know, uh, you know this this gambit of of what's happening to the poor little people in those countries. That was used in the 30s. You know, you're aware of that, of course. That large numbers of people uh, claimed that the that the and this 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 actually happened. That large numbers of people were angry at the poles. They said, "Do you realize what the poles are doing? They're killing thousands of poor civilians in Warsaw." by acting the way they're acting against these guys who just want to peacefully come in and take over the country, you know? <laughs> Literally, do you know that that happened? Do you know that people, they were so so fighting, trying to prevent, uh, trying to prevent their mind from accepting the fact that ultimately somebody was going to have to do something about it, and guess who it was going to have to be? That, 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 that they just flip-flop backwards trying to pretend that whatever was happening was for the best of all possible worlds. And anybody that objected to it was, was ridiculous soreheads. That was the end of it. Uh, they, they, they were not only soreheads, but they were also irresponsible, and they were killing large numbers of, quote, innocent people. Have you noticed how very little you hear in, this, in, all, in all the reporting on this of the innocent people killed by the Viet Cong? You don't hear much about that. Well, isn't it amazing that they can carry on all these uh, these uh, uh, these gunfights in the middle of cities and they never kill anybody? Only 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 the other side kills people. The Viet Cong doesn't. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, <laughs> this this uh, this side of the war is not being reported much, but it is a fact. I heard about it all over the East. I heard about. Uh, now, and I'm not, again, I'm not, and you know what's going to happen immediately. Uh, there will be large numbers of letters coming in saying Shepard's a right-wing nut. Uh, this is a, this is a, you know, I, I want to show you, I want to read a letter to you here, which I think also says a great deal about the, where is it now? Yeah, it says a great deal about the hang-ups of our time. That if you talk about any given subject, how much time do we have, Lee? All right, if you talk about any given subject, no matter what it is, you will be accused of being involved or pro that subject. In other words, if I, if I ever came on and said, you know, there's a lot of brutality 
Now, just as a hypothetical statement, if I said there's much brutality among many demonstrators, I would automatically then be anti-desegregation to a large number of people. Now, why? Well, because you have merely said something which they themselves have felt and have tried to ignore and incidentally uh, somehow uh, destroys the pure image of a thing they want to believe in totally. So you better be careful. McCarthy discovered this a few years ago, this technique, and used it nationally. That if you ever objected to McCarthy's techniques, uh, his purported techniques of hunting purported communists, he accused you of being a communist. You were a communist, or you were a communist sympathizer. And so most men learned to shut up. They did not want to get accused of these things. Now, I'll show you a letter here. Here's a letter. Time, 1050, place, 23rd Street, Automat. Listening to your show while waiting for my bus to Staten Island. Mr. Shepard, I notice you seem to be on a him-her kick, you know, the role reversal kick, as you say it. Hung up on this thing. Remember Shakespeare's line, Methinks the lady does protest too much. Someone, like me, may start looking at you with puzzled and questioning eyes. Now, see what I mean? This is why people hesitate today in the public print to even talk about the role reversal because instantly large numbers of guys say, oh boy, he must have troubles. So you don't do it. And he thinks this is a logical argument. In short, uh, obviously Gibbon, writing about the decline and fall of Rome, must have had a hard time with some Italians. That's why he wrote it, you know. <laughs> uh, so so this, is, this, is, this, is a, this is a common problem. Now, if I sit here and say that there might be far more to this situation of the communists in, in, in East Asia, this uh, war that's going on in the Far East, then most of us will want to admit that there is likely to be a larger world issue at stake that could involve all of us, whether we like it or not. I am always in, in danger of being accused of, one, being a right-wing nut. Obviously, he's a right-wing John Bircher. Uh, two, I'm an apologist for Johnson. Obviously, this guys uh, he's a Democrat, he's an obvious apologist for Johnson. Three, he's a warmonger. Listen to that idiotic warmonger. <laughs> and so on down the line. So generally, most guys refrain from saying that commentators they may yell about this officer was inept they may say this ambassador made a silly statement they may say this guy from the Viet Cong said this and it's ridiculous and so on and so but in the end they very they very carefully skirt the major issue which could very well be far larger than anything that any of us want to admit to and so ultimately you have to just say well let's go back and tell stories about when we were kids uh, let's go back and talk about uh, the great movies of the 30s, huh? Let's go back and talk about... Uh, let's sing a folk song about it, shouldn't we? Oh, I believe in peace. Oh, I don't want no war. When will they ever learn about war? When will they ever learn... You know, this kind of jazz. As if that settles it. Singing a song about Hitler did not put Hitler in his place. And uh, unfortunately, <laughs> that's the ultimate problem that things do come up in the world and and man's urge to transcend all other men uh, man's urge to rule all other men is one of the oldest and most beautifully documented urges that we have uh, the Genghis Khan syndrome uh, has been around a long time uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and to think just because we have now arrived at the ultimate weapon 
that that's going to somehow do away with that urge is the purest sophistry. It's the purest, ridiculous thinking that I can think. It's, it's ridiculous. Because, you know, every given age has, has, has had what it thought was the ultimate weapon. It really did. You know, during the 30s, everybody said, well, it's ridiculous. Nobody could have a war. Why, with the aircraft, with the, with the kind of air... And they did, you know, with the aircraft and with poison gas and with the microbe war, they called it then. They now call it chemical warfare now. They could wipe out civilization in 25 minutes, and they could have. And everyone thought, that's silly. That does away with it. There'll be no more Hitlers. No more, there'll be no more dictators. No more ridiculous uh, war mind. Well, I'm not so sure. In fact, many of them use the threat of the ultimate weapon as the means to gain their ends and are not afraid of it either. Uh, Hitler, Hitler threatened, uh, you know, one of the most famous threats in all history. Hitler, Hitler threatened the, the, uh, the people of Holland with total annihilation. Did you know that? Total annihilation. Unless they gave in. And he proved that he could do it. He laid down something like uh, 1,200 bombers over Rotterdam in about five minutes. And he practically leveled the city and says, okay, now? And they came to heel. In other words, he said, I'm going to annihilate the world. If you don't come with it, Dad, you better uh, sign on the dotted line or else. And so have you noticed in the speeches of Mao Zedong, the same thing is happening. He's saying the same thing. And that's one of the reasons why Russia is scared out of its socks. It, <laughs> it, has, it has created a Pandora's uh, monster. It's really the, the box of Pandora has been opened and out came Mao Zedong, you know, uh, instead of this simple little proletarian agrarian reformer. So, uh, you know, the world, the world is quite complex today, kiddies. <laughs> and, uh, and whether you're in school or not, uh, you know, I, I, I'd love, you know, no, there isn't anything that most people would love more than to be allowed to totally pursue their own selfish course throughout their entire life without so much as a ripple. Uh, this has been the utopian dream of mankind since the very beginnings of time. You know, at the time of the revolution, when America was involved in its revolution, one of the great problems was to get guys to come off the farm, to do something, to help. They really, Washington had a fantastic problem. Guy, why? Well, I don't know why I should leave my farm. I've just grown the potatoes now. I'm not a peaceful man. Well, and so, ultimately, I suppose you have to say that whatever it is, it's with us forever. And it will go on and on and on and on. And, and life itself is sometimes, at the very least, exceedingly inconvenient. Exceedingly. 